0: Some of your family and friends, you're gathered at the deer shack. I've heard some of you have already shot your deer already. But you're fixing supper and no one has gotten a deer at that shack and Bambi got away and the conversation is beginning to wear a little thin about the deer that's not there and it switches to religion. And as religion gets thrown into the conversation, you know what's coming. Uncle Bill. And he loves to start the conversation about religion. And he begins telling you that he was online and he found this site called The Christian Progressive. And it informs you of a comment that was written. He actually wrote it down and he put it in his pocket and he pulls it out, saving it for the deer camp. And this is what he read to you at that camp. How sad and tragic... That religion has shamed sexuality. Sex is something nearly all people have participated in and most people enjoy. The Christian church is, in my opinion, guilty of shaming us at the very core of who we are, sexual people. As a family therapist for the past 27 years, I have seen thousands of people who have been shamed sexually. But he goes on to push a little farther and he makes a statement like this. I can't believe how you Christians get so hung up on sex. You're always trying to limit people and how they love each other. And you turn to Uncle Bill and you say, what? What do you tell him at that point? If you're new... We're in a series here called Big Objections. I would believe but. And understand for some people, this idea of what we teach, it's an objection to faith. But let me show you the basis of of why we want to build our spiritual toolbox so we can love people a little bit better. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This topic is wide, it's deep, it's difficult and I don't have time to go into some of the issues that I wish I could, but here's my belief, just looking back over the years, the church has not done a great job in equipping people on this topic. And my response, the response to this topic is, frankly, has not been consistent. And even of churches that call themselves Christian, it's kind of all over the place. But I would also say this to preach on this topic of a matter of fact, a the theology of sexuality is hard it 's not one of the favorite topics i don 't think of pastors out there, and I believe this for generation the, the topic again has been ignored and, and folks that 's also true in the parenting realm as well in the parenting world. But let me begin with an illustration of a reality. That comes into play on this particular issue, and it applies to families in general. It it forces us, I I think, to step back and go, are we being intentional as we disciple our children on this issue? Through biblical history, see, there gives the reality of some generational things that can come into play even on this topic. And this principle, we were, I, I learned this way back when I was. Younger, very young, when I was living in Vancouver, Washington. But these three stools in front of me represents three people and three generations. The first one is King David. Now, most people know who who he is, and the idea there that, you know what, David was a man that was after God's own heart. Matter of fact, let me put a verse here on the screen for you on this one. First Samuel chapter 13, But now your kingdom shall not continue. Speaking to Saul, okay, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Now David did have challenges in his life. He was not perfect, but he did not hide his flaws either. But one thing is certain is that truth, it penetrated his soul. And he was even unafraid to admit his sinfulness. His heart was broken over his sin, even in some of these areas. But you got to catch something. While he had a whole heart, he struggled to communicate it to the next generation, to his son. And if you remember his son, who takes the reign for him, this son named Solomon... You see, Solomon had a different understanding, and if you were to describe Solomon, he really didn't have the same heart as David. Matter of fact, let me put a verse on the screen, 1 Kings chapter 11. His wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. People describe him as a half-heart, spiritually speaking. But he also had children. And one of them that took over was Rehoboam. He took over at the age of 41. And one of the nuances there, because of his character, the nation of Israel was split in half. And Rehoboam took and ruled the nation of Judah. And those two tribes. And let me show you an example of what the qualities of this man was about. First Kings chapter 14. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all that their fathers had done. Whole heart, half heart, no heart. Now does this have to happen and I go no but it means a intentional spiritual development and parents we must not make it convenient for our children to walk away from the faith and from the body of Christ and understand it includes the area of sexuality chair number one a biblical certainty of what God says about sex what says about this topic people who stand in agreement with what God says and trust what God says in this area chair number two a little bit of compromise maybe not full-blown but just picking and choosing which area to follow scripture which is which is I can ignore and you understand when there's a little, just a little bit of compromise, usually the next generation heads to full-blown compromise. Chair number three, a willingness to embrace what the world teaches on this topic and stays there. But my hope is that if you're a parent, that this would stir some conversation within your home and stir you to talk about some of these things with your children. But the goal must be to prepare them as they enter this world and they are being hit at and bombarded at a younger and younger age. But here's how I want to begin today. I want to just give you four different views of sexuality that really are coming to play in our culture. And if you could follow along in the bulletin outline there, number one, I said it this way. That sexuality is actually debased and only useful for procreation. Historically, the Puritans, some of the Puritans, not all of them, taught this idea that sex in the body was, was really evil. And the old nature, it was all about the old nature, and the church communicated some things that were really dysfunctional, but history says that there were movements that said, sex is bad, and we need to ignore it, and it's evil. But you've got to catch a nuance in this area, because even while we look back at the Puritan era, some of the nuances are being taught even in churches of today. For example, even growing up, my mom and dad were not comfortable talking on this area. And just the fact that they couldn't talk about it meant that this topic was off limits and somehow something was wrong with it. You know, my sex talk and my dating talk was this. Three words from my mom, just be careful. That was it. That was it. See, if we can't talk about something, children begin to assume some things that aren't legitimate. And the Puritans had this philosophy, and again, it lingers today, that somehow you stay away from this area and you don't address it. But there's a second view of sexuality in our world as well. Number two, it's actually a tool for connecting to the divine. Now, when we lived in Vancouver, Washington, across from Portland, Oregon, there was a man that was in the news all the time. I want to put a picture on the screen there. This was Bhagwan Shri Rajneesh. He later came to be known as Osho. And and he was an... uh, Indian uh, godman from from India, the country of India. And he was the leader of this Rajneesh movement, spiritual leader, mystic. And in his compound, you understand, he connected sex with the divine. It was a, a movement toward the divine by using sexuality. His roots were obviously in Hinduism. And you were kind of becoming one with the universe. And, but recognize this isn't new to history. All through the world, there's been this view that's been hanging out there as well. Now, while some fall here in the United States and in Western culture, not, not so much. It's there if you look for it. But actually, number three is the dominant view. And here's what it is. That sexuality should have no boundaries. And its goal is pleasure and happiness. Pure pleasure is the goal. And it's about what makes one happy. And listen, no one has the right to tell us that we shouldn't be happy. Now, a, a key piece here this view, for many people in this view, they've separated the physical aspect with the issue of relationship. And if you stand back and just listen carefully, though, it's rooted in I gotta have happiness. And if you are denying my happiness, you are infringing on my rights as a personal human being. Now, realize it's a very selfish view of sex. But it's kind of, I want what I want. Don't tell me otherwise. But there's no focus on consequences and realize it's shallow. It's often divorced from relationship. But a key piece to understand of what happened and its manifestations, and it's so important, it's something that took place about 10 years ago. And it's this. This topic moved from an ethical or moral issue over to a human rights issue. Morality to a personal right. And this took place, and the battle was kind of lost about 10 years ago. Yeah, they threw in the word love with it, But understand, and we'll talk about it more, the shift really happened that long ago. Let me give you a fourth view. Sexuality was created and designed by God. And I might add, and it's good. Now, many people haven't thought along these lines that sex was designed by God and actually was in his thoughts before the creation of the world. Before Adam and Eve were created, God was planning for sexuality with the human race. But let me walk through a couple, two key points here to understand this, this reality of a biblical sexuality. And we need to be able to understand these, to communicate, to give a defense. Again, with gentleness and respect, I must. we need to add that. And, and so this is where I, I want to go here for our time today. But again, one reminder also. We need to grow in the ability to ask questions. In our spiritual toolbox, we must begin to learn to ask some things to help penetrate hearts. So if I went back to Uncle Bill, what if I did something like this? Uncle Bill, can I make a statement and then ask you a question? See, I believe that sexuality is not about a right but it's actually an ethical or moral issue. And my question to you, Uncle Bill, who gets the right to decide that this is a human rights issue or a morality issue? Who gets the right to decide? And you might say something, Uncle Bill, do you remember Grandma? What do you think her view was Human rights or morality? I can almost guarantee you that the vast majority of grandmas would say it was a morality issue. See, that question, who gets the right to decide? But what if he comes back and and says something like this, but people have desires. Maybe they're just made a certain way. Why should we judge anybody for what they do? You know, the Bible tells us not to judge. Uncle Bill, can I show you where you are inconsistent about what you believe even on this issue? Uncle Bill, can I give you an example? What if a man declared that that he decided that his sexuality is about being attractive to young kids, young children? Does he have the right to decide what makes him happy? Does he have the right to decide to pursue that happiness? Are you telling me, Uncle Bill, that that's okay? To act on his new identity? I don't know if you realize this, but there are now colleges that are already using the argument of of that they were made this way in the pedophile world that are arguing for the fact that how dare we tell them how to act because that's the way they were made. We have no right to tell them that their urges are morally wrong. See, Uncle Bill, is that what you want? See, Uncle Bill, do you see your inconsistency on the issues of sexuality? You want a morality issue on one thing. And you want a human rights issue on the other. But Uncle Bill, would you let me share with you what God says about sexuality? By the way, just a side note, you know, England is in a battle right now. They're trying to lower the age of consent. They're at 16 right now. There's some people advocating as low as 13. Germany is actually at 14 here and the the nation that has the youngest age of consent is Nigeria at age 11. But how do we give a defense? And one of the things that we must be is rooted in the scriptures and we must root our children in the scriptures as well. And we need to be able to defend and say with gentleness and respect what God thinks about sex and sexuality. See, most people still believe in God, but they don't want to connect it with sexuality. So understand the sexual issues are still connected and often spoken about even in the scriptures today. And again, don't shrink back on stating that God is the one that declares what is morally good and what's not good. So realize as a follower of Christ that God's greatest desire for us, though, is not about happiness. It's about being transformed into a Christ-likeness. To be in Him, to live and to love and to think like Jesus. But again, the culture—do they know that? The answer is no. So, what do we teach our children? So, what do we? How do we help them flourish in this area and even protect them? So, let me give you a couple of these main points and just to wrestle with them here for a bit this morning. Number one: a biblical certainty. That sexuality is rooted in creation when God made us male and female. Now, I wish I could spend a whole sermon on this topic, but I can't. But understand this. At the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, this area got distorted. Satan took it, and he flipped it upside down, and it shifted away from its original intent. What was good? What was God made, and it was beautiful. And let me show you some text, as that maybe for Uncle Bill, that you would actually open your phone and you'd pull up the scriptures. And here's one of them, Romans chapter one, that you might want to have him read. Look at how it goes in verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That lies, Genesis chapter three. You can be like God, okay. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The creature is us, ourselves. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Hard passage deals with the topic of homosexuality. But maybe, Uncle Bill, look at this one as well. Matthew chapter 15. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Matter of fact, remember, Jesus is speaking here. This is the words from Jesus. But another one, look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife, a type of incest going on. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body colossians 3 5 but put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality purity passion evil desire covetousness which is idolatry the last one for this morning first thessalonians 4 3 for this is the will of god your sanctification that you abstain you catch that it's working against something that you abstain from sexual immorality Uncle Bill, these are just a few verses that speak to this issue, and there are more. See, the Bible teaches about sexual immorality, Uncle Bill, and that word sexual immorality is the word word pornea. It includes sexual activity that's outside the marriage, any sexual activity outside the marriage covenant. See, God says that within marriage, sex is a gift and it's to be expressed in a marriage. Uncle Bill, outside of marriage, it doesn't unite. It divides, and it's based on selfishness. That's what God says. Are we willing to be that bold with an Uncle Bill? But for all of us folks, realize that the word pornea there is a broad word. It would cover incest. It would cover uh, prostitution, anything outside the bounds of marriage. But the message, you understand, to our children, from the media, and even from some churches, it doesn't hurt. Just enjoy yourself and do anything in the name of love. But see, when one worships and serves the creature rather than the creator, you know what? That path actually makes sense. Why not? Why not? But as a follower of Jesus, it means that we don't think like the world. We don't do like the world. We follow somebody different than the world. See, but it leads then to a second critical point. Number two, that God gave boundaries for the expression of sexuality. And what's the boundaries? Marriage. Marriage. And we have to believe that boundaries that are placed by God are always in our best interests. You know, I've shared this before and it was not, I, I do not take credit for it in any way. You know, but my son put a boundary, actually him and his fiance went before they were married. They did not kiss until the wedding day. They put that boundary in place. My daughter did not kiss her, Josh, until she was engaged. A boundary. Why? There was a benefit to that. i actually getting to know the other person. And they, I think this as well, they wanted to do God's will on this issue. See, the scriptures reveals that. Do our students understand that sexual purity is the will of God? It's God's will. And the Scriptures affirms that. And sexuality in the right context is God-given, and it is beautiful. It's right. It's a gift. See, Genesis 2, for a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and become one flesh, that's not just any relationship. That is clearly marriage. And Jesus affirms it when he quotes even that passage when he speaks in the Gospels. But sexual intimacy was always a part of God's plan before the fall. It was thought of before even creation took place. But God set the boundaries for sexual expression within marriage, male and female. But understand what this means. Do our children, before they get into a relationship, do they know about biblical sexuality and marriage? Because the context needs to be put together. When my mom just said, just be careful, there was no context for it. She didn't bring in the idea of marriage, what God's plan was, the beauty of it in that context. See, God is the one that sets the boundaries and the instruction on it. Are we willing to talk to our children about this and include the issue of marriage with it? And if we do not connect it to marriage, we're actually missing out on the biblical model of sexuality. If we leave it out, it's missing the heart of of marriage, but our children must hear this and know what God says about it, even for marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship, and functionally, that covenant includes a vow that says, This I belong to you. And when that happens, sexual intimacy becomes a sign and a seal of that marriage vow, of the unity of it. See, sexuality is linked to the vow within a marriage to leave the mom and dad and become one. And it's saying that you continue to say with your body what you said with your mouth. That we are one and God made the institution of marriage. See, but that order was what God intended. And God even wants it to flourish in a marriage. Yes, part of the flourishing is procreation, children. Part of it's an expression of grace-filled love. Part of it's the enjoyment and the pleasure of being with the other person. But part of it is the protection of the relationship. I don't have time to go here, but 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's about protection as well. And, again, I, I don't have the time. Paul also points out in that text, not everybody's called to be married. There's an issue of singleness. And what do you do then with the issue of Singleness. Because the reality from 1 Corinthians 7 is one has to conclude that the desires of sexuality is not our greatest need. That's not what the culture says, but frankly, it's a bit secondary to who we really are as people. See, the world teaches that sex is used for happiness and pleasure and some type of meaning, and of actually relational meaning, is where they're hoping to find it. But understand this, as a follower of Christ, it can be different. And there's sometimes there's even an advantage not to be married. Paul pointed that out. But the challenge, I think, on this topic... We look around our world, and it's easy to become, yeah, a judge, to be judgmental. So my goal is not to judge, but to say, what does God communicate on this issue? So I realize I do need to try to be sensitive and realize there are many of us that never have had teaching on this area. You know, I didn't get any teaching on sex or relationships until after I was married. And I wish I could go back and do things differently. But I do know this. We still have a gracious God. You know, and even here, if you're a little nervous today, I need to say this. God wants to meet you. And he wants, wherever you're at, for for you to move toward him. He wants to give you freedom and hope as you move toward Jesus. But freedom and hope is actualized as we come under God's will, and we trust that he's good, that he's just, and that his loving plans and his boundaries are best. And the opposite, though, of that is frankly kind of snubbing our nose at God and going, I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to decide what I want to decide. But God wants to meet you wherever you're at, and he wants to give you hope. But God is looking to protect marriages and the institution of marriage, a man and a woman. And the marriage institution is the primary picture, I'll remind you, of the relationship between the Son, Christ, and us, if we know Christ, the body of Christ. We're his bride. See, do we recognize even that, the beauty of that? but the world is feeding a lie in this area every day, the media, the advertising world, the entertainment world that has no boundaries. It feeds into the selfishness of our flesh that we need to be whole people. You need to participate in this area, the world that's made an industry around sexuality and all its variations. See, people think God must be keeping something from us Now, I realize that even as we believe this, that the Uncle Bills can come back and throw questions at us, but are we willing to be bold and with gentleness invite the Uncle Bills back to a truth, the truth that God has the right to determine what is good and what's beautiful and what's not good and harmful. See, are we ready to defend what God has said that's good and right? But back to these three chairs. Chair number one, what does God say on this issue? Are we convinced of it? Or what about when he begins to throw doubt at us? Just like in the garden, did God really say on this issue? I'm not sure of... But we've got to catch something. The moment we begin to doubt what God says and, and embrace that which is okay, we begin to try to straddle the certainty of what God says. But here's the deal. On certain of these topics, like homosexuality, for the most part in the Christian world, yes, it's wrong. But we want to straddle to, to it, and we look to find ways that, of dealing with sexuality that aren't quite that bad. We rate it. Let me just give you a quote. I don't have it on the screen. People have tried for years to distance themselves from the Bible to the degree that it makes them comfortable. See, that's hard. But what about those questions that come along? But why can't we have a union expressing love? We're expressing our relationship in love and the relationship that we have is because we love each other. But you understand that question is dodging the ethical and the moral question of what God decided. They wanted a human right. It's dodging it. And they come back, but you can't deny me that the right of loving. And here's where I go, be bold in stating that it's a moral question and use that illustration of age to push back on the issue that it's a morality question. Because their reason is inherently flawed. Sexuality and how it's expressed is either a moral and ethical issue or it's not. And if it's not, there can be no limitations. No limitations. Everyone is right and free to do what's right in your own eyes. Age makes no difference. Older, a child, it makes no difference. See, which do we want? I need an You know, we're called to love people, our neighbors, our parents, family, compassion, affection. But do we express that in a sexual sense? The answer is no. No. I'm called to love my children, but not to express it that love sexually. See, it points to God putting in boundaries in place for our benefit. But to end here, we must believe that he wants to set people free. He wants to rescue people from the beliefs that they have. And as, they, as God works in them, as the Holy Spirit works, what can happen is that their joy, their peace, their happiness is found in a relationship with him. So it's not our job to condemn them. But just in gentlest respect, we call them back to the word of God. And that it starts with a real relationship with Jesus. And oftentimes, that's what they need first. They need to hear about Jesus. And that he died for them and he paid the penalty for sin. So we must believe that God wants to set people free, but not in condemnation. See, He wants even for all of us to taste and see how good He is, to find our meaning in Him. You know, even within the church, we look at for our spouse or our husband to find meaning, but understand that there's a, there's a way to express that that's right and beautiful and what God, God's will is. But ultimately, even marriage on this earth doesn't last. In heaven, it ends. But it points that someday our real meaning will be found in Christ. And yet he set up the institution of marriage for it to be beautiful, to represent Christ in the church, for not to have bad marriages, to have profound ones. That invite people to taste and see the goodness of God. Parents, talk to your kids. They need to be prepared what the world is teaching them. They need to see it as they're watching television, as they're going to movies. They need to spot the stuff and be willing to say no. Let's stand and pray.